0: Deadline, White House, is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: everyone it is four o'clock in new york i'm alicia menendez in for nicole wallace for most of us this stretch between christmas and the new year is a sleepy slow lazy period of time but not if you're jack smith you might have thought the special counsel would take a breather this holiday especially since judge tanya chutkin has pressed pause on the federal election interference case against donald trump till the question of presidential immunity is resolved but no jack smith has been working away Case in point, this morning, the special counsel unleashed a scathing new filing, putting the disgraced, twice impeached, four-times indicted ex-president on notice about his rhetoric and disinformation. kind of rhetoric and disinformation we have heard over and over and over again. Whether it's when Trump is bloviating about witch hunts and election interference outside a civil fraud trial in New York, or in late-night Christmas rage posts on Truth Social, Now Donald Trump can say what he wants online, outside of court, but what he cannot do, Jack Smith argues, is make those dubious claims before a jury during his upcoming federal election interference trial. Quote, through public statements, filings, and argument in hearings before the court, the defense has attempted to inject into this case partisan political attacks and irrelevant and prejudicial issues that have no place in a jury trial. Although the court can recognize these efforts for what they are and disregard them, the jury, if subjected to them, may not. The court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which Trump propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. Jack Smith then ticks off a highlight reel of Trump's favorite spurious arguments. Things like Trump's, quote, complaints that the grand jury indictment and the court's trial date will interfere with his political activities. Or Trump's, quote, false accusation that the indictment was directed by the current president as a form of election interference. Jack Smith also takes issue with some of Trump's favorite catchphrases, like the injustice department or Biden indictment. All of it, Jack Smith says, would taint a jury pool Quote, in addition to being wrong, these allegations are irrelevant to the jury's determination of the defendant's guilt or innocence. Would be prejudicial if presented to the jury and must be excluded. Put another way, the Trump defense has, quote, repeatedly used rhetoric that may be acceptable on the campaign trail, but not on a trial. Make no mistake. This is Jack Smith arguing that words matter, especially when those words are aimed at potential jurors who will be deciding the fate of disgraced ex-president, facing 91 counts across four criminal cases. And that is where we start this hour with co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy, Ian Bassin. Plus, former lead investigator for the January 6th Select Committee, Tim Hafey. And here at the table, Democratic strategist and director of the Public Policy Program at Hunter College, Basil Smeichel. Gentlemen, it is good to see you all. Tim, let's start with you. Jack Smith takes issue with what he calls Trump's habit of blaming other people for what happened on January 6th. I want to read just a little bit more for you from the filing quote. The defendant has signaled his intention to blame the events of January 6 on the Capitol Police, National Guard, and the district's mayor. Courts in this district have overwhelmingly rejected attempts by other January 6 defendants to shift the blame to law enforcement. As a legal matter, the alleged shortcomings of law enforcement do not sanction the defendant's criminal conduct. A bank robber cannot defend himself by blaming the bank's security guard for failing to stop him a fraud defendant cannot claim to the jury that his victim should have known better than to fall for his scheme. And the defendant cannot argue that law enforcement should have prevented the violence he caused and obstruction he intended. Tim, Trump trying to shift blame for January 6th, something the January 6th committee itself grappled with. Your reaction to this filing?
2: Yeah, Alicia, you know, when we first started working on the Select Committee, we kind of looked at the 9-11 Commission as the gold standard of sort of an example of what we were trying to do, credible, nonpartisan accounting of what occurred. In respect, with respect to 9-11, the Commission found that there were failures of U.S. intelligence that perhaps should have been more acutely aware of the threat posed by al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But that did not absolve Osama bin Laden and his conspirators from flying planes into the World Trade Center. Very similarly here, we found that, sure, there were failings of law enforcement to share information, to operationalize the intelligence they had about the prospect of violence. None of that absolves the proximate cause of the attack on the Capitol which was President Trump and his co-conspirators. So we have heard this attempt to shift blame. Uh, our committee found that, that, that it did not succeed, that the only reason we had a riot at the Capitol was because of the, that was the final prong of a multi-step intentional plan to disrupt a joint session and prevent the transfer of power. The context of what law enforcement did or didn't do in no way absolves the proximate cause.
1: Here's the thing, Ian, big picture. It's not a surprise that Donald Trump's already responded to this latest filing from Jack Smith. I'm not going to read you what he wrote in its entirety. It does point out that Judge Tanya Chutkin has stayed the case, that there should be no litigation until questions of presidential immunity are resolved. I wonder then what it tells you, what it should tell us, that Jack Smith is still working away, pushing ahead despite that.
0: Well, there's something very mundane going on, and there's something more consequential going on. The mundane thing going on is that uh, special counsel Jack Smith has filed a very standard motion that is filed before criminal proceedings that seeks to make sure that the court excludes from proceedings in front of a jury those things that are not relevant to the jury determining whether the facts alleged actually took place. Jack Smith has filed an indictment that citizens of the District of Columbia voted had probable cause to believe that Donald Trump engaged in certain acts conspiring to obstruct official proceedings and deprive people of the right to vote. And the question for the jury is simply whether Trump did the things alleged or not. And as any prosecutor does in any trial, Jack Smith is simply saying that all this other stuff that Trump is going off about on the campaign trail is not relevant to that question and would potentially distract the jury from the task before them. And that's the mundane standard thing. The more consequential thing that's going on is Jack Smith also understands that when defendants don't have the law on their side and don't have the facts on their side, the only strategy left of them is to actually put the entire system on trial. Mm. There is a very frightening precedent for that, which happens to have happened 100 years almost to the day before this trial is scheduled to begin, on February 26, 1923, the Beer Hall Putsch trial began in Bavaria, where Adolf Hitler, who launched a putsch against the government, was put on trial and decided to turn the proceedings around and put the entire German government on trial. A hundred years later, Jack Smith knows that's exactly what Donald Trump plans to do, and it's not what's supposed to happen in a court of law.
1: Right. And and Basil, when we talk about the undermining of institutions, that is part of what is at risk here.
3: Yes, that is exactly right. You know, the, the what's interesting is that on Christmas in this Christmas season he rains fire and brimstone uh down mm-hmm. on his um on on his alleged opponents. And you know, unfortunately, no matter what Jack Smith can do here, this is the move that Donald Trump has. It's almost it's really his only move. So he's going to continue to do this. Um, our, our institutions are not safe in, from this. And in fact, we do need to figure out ways to be more protective of them. And if there's any concern as to whether or not we are at all desensitized by his rhetoric, um, only look at Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss, uh, who can't even who can't even live in their own name right now because of all that has come uh, come for them. Being able to engage in this kind of rhetoric is coin of the realm for Donald Trump. It's the legal tender that he uses to run for office and for his supporters to buy into his candidacy. So it will not go away. Um, and quite frankly, for anyone that's trying to sort of shift this, this dynamic, think about the fact that every word that he says, that call and response is meant to get to the emotion of that, of, of his supporters. And we, as much as we want to challenge with, With legalities and what we want to challenge with words, we have to remember that this is touching the emotion and the anger and the fear and frustration of his supporters. Right.
1: I got to tell you, Tim, I think Ian and Basil get right at it, which is it's hard to believe that there are many Americans out there who've not already heard all of this rhetoric, who've not already heard Donald Trump blame what happened on January 6th on other people, ranging from law enforcement to Nancy Pelosi, in as much as it is about this trial, the outcome of this trial, what happens in that courtroom, what the jury decides. It is also, to their point, about what happens to the system writ large.
2: Yeah. Yeah, look, exactly. A lot of what I have seen from the former president and his lawyers seems, as Basil said, to be motivated at a trial in the court of public opinion, not trial in the courtroom. And, And all Jack Smith is doing here, as Ian correctly points out, is flagging issues that may or may not be introduced in court. He is, as a presidential candidate, at liberty to criticize the system, to question the motives of the special counsel. Judge Chutkin has adjudicated that. But in court, where evidence, relevance is the standard, evidence is what determines whether or not a jury can or can't hear something or base a verdict on something is an entirely different form. There are rules of relevance that apply. And the problem with a lot of what the president is saying is, A, it's factually false. It lacks foundation. And secondly, it's just not relevant to the core issue in the case. Did the former president specifically intend to Disrupt, interfere with, impede, or disrupt an official proceeding. So it fails on both prongs, the factual prong and the legal prong. And Jack Smith is just pointing out hey, this is not a political campaign. This is the courtroom, and evidence matters.
1: I mean, Ian, factually false is. Pretty evergreen way of describing most of what Donald Trump says. He and his legal team, also big fans to that end of trying to use the First Amendment to justify his rhetoric, to cloak himself in it, to claim that he is the one that is being attacked and with him, all Americans. Is that argument going to work here?
0: Well, first off, one of the things that Jack Smith said in his filing today is that the First Amendment question, which is a legitimate question that any defendant can raise, is a legal question for the court. And the former president can raise that and indeed has. And that's for the court to determine, the judge to determine, not the jury. So he'll have an opportunity to make that argument and see how far it gets. But I think what Donald Trump gets here is that he doesn't fare well in courts where evidence matters and facts matters and rules matter. He's someone who fundamentally doesn't believe in the rules. And when he takes all of his giant hand-waving arguments into a courtroom, historically, they have tended to lose over and over and over again, 60-some-odd times in the aftermath of 2020. His allies, Rui Giuliani, Carrie Lake, they are struggling to ev- to evince facts in courtrooms. And what Donald Trump understands is if he's going to win in court, he's going to have to do it in a way beyond simply law and facts. And that's with this sort of stirring up of political rhetoric and mobs of people to intimidate the system. And that's precisely what our system is designed rightfully to prevent.
1: Tim, there's an element of this filing that I just want to have you talk us through. And that, that's that one of the things that Smith specifically cites is the question of Trump's state of mind. Trump's state of mind very much at the heart of the January 6 investigation. uh, This point from today's filing, quote, the defendant's state of mind during the charged conspiracies will be a key issue at trial. Both parties will introduce circumstantial evidence of the defendant's state of mind, and the defendant, defendant may choose to testify himself. But the defendant should be precluded from eliciting speculative testimony from any witnesses other than himself about the defendant's state of mind or beliefs about the election or his claims of election fraud. Help us understand what Jack Smith is driving at here.
2: Yep. So the statute that issue in the indictment, 1512C, requires the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant corruptly intended to interfere with an official proceeding. Corruptly is interpreted to mean he specifically intended that the official proceeding be uh, disrupted. So what Jack Smith is saying, that he is going to present circumstantial evidence of the president's state of mind, which he believes will have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the president absolutely intended for the joint session to be interrupted and the election not to be certified. And he anticipates that the president himself may testify and say, no, I had no idea that uh, that these folks were going to storm the Capitol and that the election uh, or that the special proceeding was going to be obstructed. What he's trying to prevent is, again, very standard prosecutorial practice, and that is eliciting opinion. It would be a, a mistake for a witness to say, I think he believed this, or I don't believe that he intended that, right? Those kinds of opinions are just not admissible. Someone's speculative opinion about the president's state of mind. What is admissible is what the president said, what the president did, circumstantial evidence that bears upon his state of mind. And of course, the defendant himself has the opportunity to talk directly about what he intended or did not intend. So a lot of what we're seeing in this pleading is really standard fare, the special counsel trying to limit the evidence that is admissible to that which is relevant and not stuff that is meant to inflame, distract, or otherwise get in the way of the jury's Uh, determination of intent.
1: So, Basil, well, hanging over all of this, of course, the question of presidential immunity, there was a development there which she had a group of former officials for Republican presidents urging the appeals court to reject Trump's request for presidential immunity, arguing that, quote, nothing in our Constitution or any case supports former President Trump's dangerous argument for criminal immunity. They add that siding with Trump would, quote, encourage future presidents to commit crimes and stage coups to remain in power. There are a lot of moving parts in this, and just this part seems the most relevant, the most dangerous.
3: It, it, it certainly does. And the fact that you have those individuals coming out and making that statement is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his being Trump supporters are not going to care. He'll see them sure. as relics of the past. What is interesting to me about that question is what do the current leaders of the House and Senate and the current leaders of the Republican Party think? Because the individuals that signed that letter are, to me, standard bearers of Republican politics. If you want a future in this party, in this country, somebody should say, You know what? Let's listen to this body of information and this history and this context. Let's move it present, move it forward and say we need to start to think deeply and seriously about what the future of the party should look like. And that should start with Donald Trump. They're not doing that. What they do is artifice. They are um, in one part looking busy and two parts trying to appeal to Donald Trump. So it's not going to it. it doesn't, it's not going to land the way that it should land. And that's that's unfortunate. I imagine and I'm not an attorney, but this question about immunity is going to go back and forth in multiple courts over the course, course of time. The main issue for Donald Trump is how much can I delay how long can he delay the process, delay the proceedings so that more of that angry rhetoric that we've been talking about starts to filter among voters and in in some way sort of bolster the case he's trying to make politically?
1: Ian, I want to go back to this point that you made at the beginning, this sort of historical analog between Hitler and the trial that we are seeing now. Of course, we've spent a lot of time rightfully talking about the ways in which some of Trump's rhetoric mirrors that of Adolf Hitler, very purposefully using xenophobia, racism as an aperture um, for authoritarianism, for extremism. When you layer in the element that you bring to us, right, this idea of turning the question on the system itself, of putting the system itself on trial and you zoom out, it's bigger than any one piece that we are seeing from that playbook. It is the totality of it.
0: It is. And fundamentally, it is the way in which Donald Trump differs in kind, not degree, from every prior president in this country from either party and, frankly, from almost every other elected official of either party in this country. Because the truth is, almost every elected Democrat and Republican in this country, at least prior to the arrival of Donald Trump, believed fundamentally in the American Constitution, in the idea of checks and balances, in the idea of a separation of powers, in the idea that rules mattered and that process and due process matter. And what's different about Donald Trump is he fundamentally does not believe in any of that. And so what you're seeing here is ultimately the clash between an American system of constitutional government with rules and procedures and institutions and a leader who simply doesn't believe in any of it and is trying to overwhelm and overrule it all with brute force.
1: Basil Smeichel, as always, thank you for being at the table with me, spending some time with us, getting us started. Ian, you are sticking around. Tim's gonna be back a little later in the hour because when we come back, what words come to mind when you think of Trump 2024? Is it dictatorship, revenge? corruption maybe well if you answered yes to any of those turns out donald trump he agrees with you trump appears to embrace the dictator label that story is next plus with a critical new piece of evidence involving the ex-president himself and a key witness who has now flipped the investigation into team trump's efforts to overturn election results in michigan is heating up We're going to have the latest And later in the program, a court in Michigan says Donald Trump can stay on the primary ballot, but the high-stakes legal battle over whether Trump is eligible to run for office, it is far from over. All those stories and more when Deadline White House continues after this. Do not go anywhere.
4: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
2: Then I have an Article Two where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The oh, authority total. is total. It's total. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution.
0: Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as
2: retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except Look, for? He's going crazy. Except for day one.
1: Listen, there are only so many ways he can make it more obvious at this point. Maybe one of those banners towed by a plane at the beach or getting hit over the head with a full-page ad in the Sunday paper that just reads, I want to be an American dictator. Or this started with a poll conducted by the firm JL Partners released by the Daily Mail just yesterday, asking 1000 likely voters for a single word to summarize President Biden's and Trump's plans for another term. Then they turned the results into a word cloud where more frequent answers appear larger. So it was telling, quite telling, when Donald Trump posted his results on social media without comment or context, because the primary words right there at the center in crimson Revenge, power, dictatorship. Joining me at the table, NBC News correspondent Vaughn Hilliard. Also joining us, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at NYU and author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the present. Ian is also back. I mean, Vaughn, the likelihood that he posted that word cloud from a sense of pride. (laughs)
5: I, I, I don't have any other explanation, and nor does the campaign. I don't know if the staff has any idea themselves. The reality is, is that we all have to listen to Donald Trump, right? This is his own social media account. And, you know, you see the word revenge there, the biggest, boldest one. And to quote Taylor Swift, call it what you want to. His The word that he often uses is retribution. But I have been traveling and recovering Donald Trump for the last eight years. And I can tell you that this is more than Donald Trump. This is about the movement, the following behind him. Because eight years ago, in twenty. 2015, 2016 in Iowa, when I'd go to rallies, it was very much to come see the show, see the circus. It was a rock concert. Donald for, Trump for the goers, not for the for you. goers, not for me, for the goers. They were there to see what this was all about. The Apprentice guy. That's not what this is now. When I go and talk to his the people there, they want revenge. They want retribution. They want Donald Trump to get back in the White House and take out not only Joe Biden but take out the district attorneys to take out the Supreme Court justices. This is real. It is serious. And this is not just throwing out dictator for a day. The folks that are following him and coming to these events, driving hours, waiting in lines for him, they want him to act when he gets in the White House. And that is why I don't know the motive of him behind posting this here, but these are words that he uses. Loyalty, power, revenge, retribution.
1: Right. I mean, Ruth, it's one thing to talk about Donald Trump standing behind those words. It's another thing to talk about many, many Americans standing behind those words, too.
6: Yeah. Well, you know, at least I've said for a long time that Trump is a superb propagandist. And what he's actually done is educate Americans to see this kind of strong leadership as positive. And so now, you know, it was Sean Hannity, uh, his propagandist, who asked him the question in the first place about, you know, are you going to be a dictator? And that allowed Trump to raise this dictator theme. And now it's become his thing. And you know, I would add that uh, many he, he talks about rooting out the the radical left and communists, but many of the leaders who he's been pushing and peddling to Americans as the right kind of leader are communists, like Xi Jinping, who he's always talking about how great he is, or or the leader of North Korea. So <clears throat> it's it's the fantasy of having absolute power because. At its most basic authoritarianism is when the executive branch overwhelms and politicizes the other branches of government so that the leader is unrestrained. He can do whatever he wants. And this is, of course, Donald Trump's fantasy.
1: I mean. Ian, if I just to borrow from what Ruth has said, if he is a propagandist and he has sold Americans on this vision of governance that involves absolute power and control, how how does one then become an evangelist for democracy? How do you help people understand that that vision of absolute power for Donald Trump ostensibly means less rights for you and all Other Americans. I mean, I I know we sit here a lot and we talk about the dangers of authoritarianism. We talk about the dangers of Donald Trump. I am not convinced that we have done a good enough job enunciating what it means to live in an America that is no longer a democracy.
0: Well, I think we have to acknowledge that there's something driving this support for him. And part of it is that democracy is an imperfect form of government. It can be slow. It can be frustrating. Certainly, in recent years, it hasn't worked nearly as well as it needs to or should. But the thing that I think people don't realize and that we in America are so privileged and lucky for the most part, for most Americans, not to have experienced is that when you throw out democracy, as many people around the world have done over history, and elect someone who says, I alone can fix it, empower that person who says, just give me all the power, and I'll cut through the morass, and I'll start delivering the things that you want. And in the long run, that never works out well for that population, whether it is Mao in China, whether it is Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, Nicaragua whether it is Vladimir Putin, Russia, the people in those countries come to regret empowering the strongmen that Ruth has written so well about. And what Americans need to realize is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, democracy is imperfect. But as Churchill said, it's the worst form of government except for all the others.
1: Well, and and here's the thing, which is, (laughs) Vaughn, he is not just sort of sharing this grandiose vision. He's also sharing a number of policy positions that in his mind fall in line. So the New York Times, they accumulated all their reporting on what a potential second Trump term could look like, what he'd want to accomplish. Here's what they came up with. Trump wants to use the Justice Department to take vengeance on his political adversaries. He intends to carry out an extreme immigration crackdown. Trump plans to go far beyond his first term trade wars. He hints he may undercut NATO, retreat from Europe, plans to use military force in Mexico. He wants to use U.S. troops on domestic soil. He and his allies want greater control over the federal bureaucracy and his allies want fewer restraints on him. When you were in Iowa, when you were in New Hampshire, are people talking to you about about those policy positions, or are they talking to you about the vision of Donald Trump?
5: No, they are talking about the policy positions. And I think Ruth has articulated this so well in the past and in her writings, is that folks here, they do understand the policy debates that are going on. But Congress isn't working, right? This was the least effective Congress based on the number of bills that have passed. And when you have somebody here who commits to them that he's going to come in and get the job done, that sounds pretty appealing. Come build the wall. Forget Congress this go around. We're going to make it happen ourselves right? Go and take care of the immigration crisis. We're going to take care of it ourselves. And I think it's important to understand that's why there's also consolidation within the Republican Party. Because, look, just in the last couple of hours, he went on the attack against Nikki Haley, calling her bird brain in a social media post, a global rhino, and not a smart one. I got to see that up close and personal. Even the likes of Nikki Haley, he's effectively got Liz Cheney out of the party. Anybody who has been dissenting a voice inside of that Republican Party over the last eight years is gone. And who is he surrounding himself now with? And potentially as part of a 2025 administration, it is those loyalists like Steve Bannon, like Stephen Miller, uh, uh, along with some of our colleagues here at NBC News. Just in the last couple of days, we put out a report about those who he is surrounding himself with and is those far right individuals who have his ear this go around and they are actively uh, envisioning what an administration in order to enact those types of policies would look like were he to win in November.
1: Ruth, I have long made the point to to pick up on something that Vaughn said about the fact that this has been an Ineffective Congress. It's an ineffective Congress led by Republicans, right? They spent a whole lot of time taking a bunch of votes about who was going to be the Speaker of the House. They could end up with two different Speakers of the House, a whole lot less votes about actual issues that matter to Americans. I have argued that is by design. Who does that benefit? It benefits a leader who is trying to make the argument that the establishment cannot get it done, and so he is less dangerous than what is currently in place. In that way, in that additional, more subtle way, they are still carrying his water.
6: Oh absolutely the uh, the GOP is now an autocratic party and it is a party enrolled to a cult leader and everything they do is uh, are things that are supposed to benefit Donald Trump and I will never forget uh, that disgraceful first GOP debate where all the people who are running for president against him totally humiliated themselves and raised their hands all but two to say that they would support him uh Donald Trump even if he becomes a convicted felon this is a party that has no identity anymore beyond what is good for Trump and that's very very sad and it's also extremely dangerous we are a superpower and we're a bipartisan uh country and so when one of the two uh you know big parties becomes dysfunctional and enthralled to a dangerous authoritarian that's uh that's a very dire situation
1: in when this all happened. You made a great point. You said, for those still not taking him seriously, would you grant a 10 percent chance he's serious? And if so, would you get on a plane that has a 10 percent chance of crashing?
0: And frankly, it's higher than 10 percent because most often when autocrats come to power, the challenge for the voters and for the population is you don't necessarily know it. You know, Recep Erdogan came to power as a Democratic reformer, Vladimir Putin came to power as a Democratic reformer. When Viktor Orban ran in 2010, he didn't talk about creating a new media law that would suppress free expression and a free press. He got elected, and then he did it. Mm. Most often, it's difficult to know when the autocrat is coming. They come as a wolf in sheep's clothing, but not presently. Mm -mm. Donald Trump is telling us over and over again, I am the wolf. I am the dictator. It's far higher and a 10% chance that he's telling
1: us the truth. Vaughn Hilliard, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, Ian Basson, thank you all so much for this conversation for spending the time with us. Coming up, prosecutors in Michigan get a fake Trump elector to flip what he's telling investigators about the plot to overturn the 2020 election. That's next.
4: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
2: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. It's a big problem in Georgia, and it's, it's not a problem that's going away.
1: That was the infamous phone call just four days before the January 6th insurrection, where Donald Trump pressured Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to overturn the election results in his state. That was the call that sparked an investigation that ultimately led to Trump's fourth indictment in Fulton County, Georgia. Now, more than three years later, we are learning of another attempt by Donald Trump to directly pressure election officials that could put him and his allies in even more legal hot water. The Detroit News obtained a recording of a phone call that then-President Trump and RNC chair Ronald McDaniel made to two members of a county election board in Michigan asking them to resist certifying election results. Quote, we've got to fight for our country, Trump told the two members of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers, Monica Palmer and William Hartman, shortly after the board had met about certifying the results. We can't let these people take our country away from us. McDaniel said at another point on the call, if you can go home tonight, do not sign it. We will get you attorneys, to which Trump added, take care of that. NBC News has not been able to independently verify the recordings, but NBC News reached out to a spokesperson for the former president and to the RNC, and they did not dispute the contents of the recordings. The recovery of the discovery of this call could not have come at a worse time for Team Trump. The New York Times reporting that one of these so-called fake electors, the 16 people who were a key part of Trump's efforts to overturn the election in Michigan is expressing regret over his participation in his interviews with prosecutors working for Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, saying, quote, I felt that I had been walked into a situation that I shouldn't have ever been involved in. I am very upset. I don't show it, but I am. The elector James Renner told investigators, adding that to say he felt betrayed is an understatement. That's all I can say. Joining us now, former U.S. attorney and co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast, Joyce Vance. Tim Haifey is also back with us. Tim, your first reaction reading about that phone call between Trump, RNC chair McDaniel and the Michigan officials?
2: Yeah, we uh, heard about it during our investigation. We spoke to Monica Palmer, who I believe is one of the board of canvassers officials, Uh, She told us that she did receive a phone call from the president of the United States before she was voting on certification of the election. She did vote to certify the election, and then she subsequently tried to withdraw that, although it had no force of law. It's really important in the discussion of anything that happens in Michigan, Alicia, Mm -hmm. to remember That there were two lawsuits brought, one federal and one state in Michigan, in which judges found absolutely no evidence of any systemic fraud. Never to this day has there been any evidence of voter fraud in Michigan sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome. A Republican state legislator, Ed McBroom in Michigan, did a very, very thorough bought it with using the resources of the state legislature and found, again, verification of President Biden's victory in Michigan. So there has never been any factual foundation to question the results of the Michigan election, which is President Biden won. President Biden then received the certified, officially certified electors for the state of Michigan. Nonetheless, the president's campaign, aided by the Republican National Committee, created these fake elector certificates that were sent to Washington purporting to be official when they were not. And that has led to the criminal charges by the attorney general of Michigan. This is a pattern we've seen repeated in contested state after contested state, no evidence of fraud, nonetheless, generation of the fake elector certificates, which is criminal.
1: Joyce, I want to get your take on the timing of the events around the election certification in Michigan. November 17th, Trump and McDaniel call Wayne County officials Monica Palmer and William Hartman. That's what we were just talking about. Later that evening, Wayne County certifies the election results. November 18th, Palmer and Hartman say they regret their vote to certify the election and file affidavits to undo that vote. Then you go to November 20th, Michigan GOP leaders are summoned by Trump to the White House. November 23rd, state election board certifies Michigan election results. This sequence of events, help us put it in perspective. Just how damning is it legally, in your opinion, Joyce?
7: Well, it's incredibly damaging for Trump and for those around him. You know, to Tim's point, this is now a pattern of conduct. It's not just Georgia, which was bad enough. Now we see the same thing up in Michigan. And here's the difference, Alicia. In Georgia, Trump gets shut down by Republican politicians. They push back. They say there was no fraud. They decline to be threatened or cajoled by Trump into engaging in his conspiracy. But in Michigan, something different happens. And we see these uh, county canvassers after they participate in this phone call doing precisely what was asked of them. Now, Tim Hales from the Commonwealth of Virginia, so he's as familiar as I am with the Supreme Court case involving his governor, said that it's bribery to offer something of value to an official in exchange for withholding an official act. And that's exactly what happens here. Trump and Ronan McDaniel Romney, they say, look, if you would uh, go ahead and withhold your certification vote, We will obtain lawyers for you, something of value. And that's precisely what the Michigan canvassers try to do after that call.
1: Tim, just to zoom out for a minute and talk about timeline, which it feels is one of the core pressures that we're up against with all of these stories. The New York Times reporting this about A.G. Nessel's fake elector investigation. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel's ongoing investigation means the legal aftermath of the last presidential election in Michigan will not be over before voting begins in the next one. Pretrial hearings in the elector's case are scheduled to last into February. The state's presidential primary takes place on February 27th. And we are just now learning about this Wayne County phone call. Talk to us about the danger of having a potential second Trump presidency, a certain second Trump candidacy, before the crimes of the first are fully investigated.
2: Yeah. Look, Alicia shows again that a lot of law enforcement was slow to focus on these very real alleged crimes. I really don't think it was until the select committee started to present findings that the Department of Justice state officials realized, hey, wait a minute, this isn't just about a lot of angry rioters assaulting police officers at the Capitol. That is part of a broader scheme, which includes these fake electors, which includes the pressure on state officials, right? Easy for us in hindsight to say they should have been focused on that on January the 7th of 2021, instead of waiting until the congressional process a couple of years later ran its course. But the problem is that a lot of these Investigative bodies did not really devote the resources required to develop these facts and bring these cases until well into President Biden's term, closer closer to the election, which means, unfortunately, uh, the calendars do intersect. The legal process will run contemporaneous with uh, with people voting in Michigan and, and otherwise.
1: Tim Haifey, as always, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Joyce, you're going to be back in the next hour after the break. Growing fears of a wider war in the Middle East after strikes by Iranian-backed forces against U.S. service members in the Middle East led to another round of airstrikes by the United States. Stay with us. Early on Tuesday, the U.S. launched airstrikes against Iranian-backed militia groups in Iraq, a response to a Christmas Day attack that injured three U.S. service members. In a statement, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said, quote, The President and I will not hesitate to take necessary action to defend the United States, our troops, and our interests. There is no higher priority. While we do not seek to escalate conflict in the region, we are committed and fully prepared to take further necessary measures to protect our people and our facilities. Let's bring in NBC News White House correspondent Aaron Gilchrist out in St. Croix, where President Biden arrived just this afternoon. Aaron, what do we know about these airstrikes?
8: The president ordered these airstrikes after almost a full day, uh, a, uh, 12 hours of, uh, of briefings and updates about exactly what happened in Iraq at that air base where American service members are working and have been for a while. The president received a series of options from his National Security Council uh, after that attack and then ordered three strikes to happen inside Iraq on these uh, militia groups Uh, facilities, Iran-backed militia group facilities. Uh, As we understand it, those orders were carried out about 45 minutes after the president gave the order on Christmas Day, an unusual time to call a national security meeting. But the president did that from Camp David. Uh, His uh, secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs were able to come up with a series of options. And then those strikes were executed on those facilities. The Iraqis have said uh, that there was a a serviceman, a, a security serviceman for Iraq who was killed in that attack. Uh, But the U.S. has said that this was something that was necessary and proportionate, given all the attacks that we've been seeing in Iraq and in Syria, in particular, since the Hamas strike on Israel on October 7th, Alicia.
1: Well, to that point, Aaron, there have been at least 106 attacks on U.S. forces since October 17th. Your sense, how concerned is the administration about a wider conflict? What are they doing? What are they saying they are doing to prevent it?
8: A wider conflict has been a real concern for the administration since the Hamas attack in Israel. We know that the U.S. government positioned two aircraft carrier strike groups in the Mediterranean Sea, a show of force, thousands of troops in each of these strike groups, a show of force to other uh, organizations, other countries in that region, to say that they didn't want want them to get involved with with what's happening in Gaza and happening in Israel. Still, though, as you noted, we've seen these attacks in Syria. We've seen the attacks in Iraq. We've seen Hezbollah act out of Lebanon. And then, of course, we've seen several uh, incidents in the Red Sea to the south of Israel Uh, where the U.S. uh, Navy has had to take action to shoot down drones. Uh, Just yesterday, the Navy shot down, uh, I think it was 12 drones, and uh, there were several missiles that were launched from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. And so there is this sense by some who are watching that there has been an expansion of what's been happening in that region, but the U.S. government's posture and position hasn't changed in that it will respond to these incidents as they happen. We, uh, we haven't yet seen uh, a real uh, movement within the administration to have something more proactive happen to shut down some of these attacks before they can happen, but the U.S. has said that it will act in a way that it believes is necessary at any moment in time when there is an assault on American interests in the region.
1: NBC's Aaron Gilcross for us in St. Croix, where the president landed just this afternoon. Aaron, thank you. Quick break for us. We'll be right back.
4: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
1: Just six days before it was set to take effect, an Idaho law that would have banned gender transition care for minors and threatens medical professionals with a felony conviction if they provide that type of care has been blocked. Two Idaho families alongside the ACLU and other organizations filed a lawsuit claiming the law violates the Constitution's 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection. In the preliminary injunction, the judge said, quote, time and again, these cases illustrate that the 14th Amendment's primary role is to protect disfavored minorities and preserve our fundamental rights from legislative overreach. This, he said, is no less true for transgender children and their parents in the 21st century. The Idaho law is part of a wave of laws targeting transgender rights. This year alone, 20 states passed laws banning or restricting transition care for young people. Coming up in the next hour of Deadline White House, another ruling on whether Trump is barred from running for office because of his role in the January 6th insurrection, this time in Michigan. That story right after this quick break.
9: I'm going to follow the law. What the law says
6: is what is going to dictate how I and I hope all of my colleagues proceed in this moment in particular around thorny issues like this one particularly those of the secretaries in battleground states i'm going to be talking with al schmidt in pennsylvania with cisco aguilar in nevada with brad Raffensberger, because we know in particular in our states the impact that this decision could have not just in our among our voters but in the nation and so we're taking this seriously we're looking at it carefully and we're weighing all of the thorny issues at play
1: Hey again, everyone, it is five o'clock in New York. I'm Alicia Menendez in for Nicole Wallace. An update today out of Michigan on that thorny issue you just heard Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson describe, that of Donald Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. The fundamental question whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says no one who engaged in insurrection or rebellion after having sworn an oath to defend the Constitution can hold office, applies to the twice impeached, four times indicted ex-president. Michigan state Supreme Court this morning declining to hear a case that argued that Trump should be left off the state's primary ballot, ruling not on the question of insurrection, but on procedural grounds. It is, quote, not persuaded that the questions presented should be reviewed by this court. The Washington Post reports that Mark Brewer, an attorney for the voters who filed the Michigan lawsuit, said challenges to Trump's candidacy will continue, the Michigan rulings have focused on Trump's ability to run in the Republican primary, and Brewer said voters may argue against Trump's eligibility to run for office during the general election campaign. Courts in Arizona and Minnesota have also ruled against similar efforts to get Trump kicked off the ballot. But just last week in Colorado, we saw its Supreme Court rule that Trump is disqualified, a decision that will end up before the United States Supreme Court when Trump's team is expected to appeal it. Any day now, the monumental decision by the Colorado Supreme Court already having frightening consequences for those justices. As we covered on this program just before the holiday weekend, there was an eruption of violent rhetoric and threats online directed at them. That has continued. And the FBI said is, is now working with Denver police was providing extra patrols around the homes of the justices a scary new reality for those who are attempting to uphold the rule of law. And that is where we start this hour with New York Times reporter Katie Brenner, plus former FBI counterintelligence agent Peter Strzok, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, Frank Fugluzzi, and former U.S. attorney and co-host of the hashtag Sisters in Law podcast, Joyce Vance is back. Joyce, how do you view this decision by the Michigan Supreme Court? They, they didn't even take up the question of insurrection. They really just seem to look at this on procedural grounds.
7: Right. So it really points to the scope of the problem here. We have different states using their own state laws, which are different. Michigan's law is different from Colorado's law in terms of whether a candidate has to establish their qualification to be on the ballot. And so we're going to have this split in opinion among state Supreme Courts, which only points to the need for the United States Supreme Court to ultimately weigh in and resolve the issue. We can't have a patchwork quilt of different rules in different states across the country. It's time for the Supreme Court to to take this one up and, and to set forth what the law will be in a uniform fashion nationwide about Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot. Well, to that point, Peter, about uniformity,
1: the plaintiff's lawyer said this is not over. This is not the end. There could be challenges to Trump appearing on the general election ballot. Your sense of what that could look like?
10: Well, I think we're looking at a year ahead of a lot of litigation in front of the Supreme Court. I mean, at last count, there are at least 13 additional states that have pending uh, lawsuits about the 14th Amendment. There are at least another two that are under state of appeal. So this isn't just a question of Michigan and Colorado. You have a lot of other states currently right now that have litigation in front of them. So the Supreme Court, you know, I agree with uh, Joyce absolutely, is going to have to take this up. And keep in mind, they've got other things uh, that they have to look at, too. There's the question of whether whether or not uh, Trump should enjoy any sort of immunity. There's a question about the scope of any sort of gag order placed on Trump uh, coming out of D.C. So like it or not, I think the ability of the Supreme Court to try and buy more time is rapidly coming to an end. I think they are going to have to take these on. And I think they would be wise and are going to try and resolve these in a way that, you know, to Joyce's analogy, that doesn't result in a patchwork quilt that results in a sort of universal uh, decision and application of the Constitution. Constitution, and that from that, we'll uh, we'll see what happens as all these different states move forward.
1: Right. Katie, all, all roads lead back to the Supreme Court. We are awaiting the court's ruling on this 14th Amendment question. But first, the Trump's team, of course, needs to appeal the Colorado ruling. Any sense of when there will be an update there?
11: Yeah, they've been given a deadline by the end of this year. So, of course, they would have to meet that deadline. Otherwise, the ruling will stand and certainly they would not want that. So that is so I I think we'll see that happen really quickly. It's just how quickly the Supreme Court responds. Frank, at the heart of this 14th Amendment
1: question when applied to Donald Trump is recognizing what it was that happened on January 6th, which is particularly relevant given that there is an inability or refusal on the part of most Republicans in power to call that an insurrection from a law enforcement standpoint. What is the danger of not having a common language around that? And what is potentially the opportunity should you have courts codify that this was in fact an insurrection?
12: Yeah, we, we have anything but a common definition uh, and common language these days. And my concern continues, as, as Pete mentioned, this goes on and on, 13, 14, 15 more states. And as Joyce mentioned, this could absolutely, in fact, Minnesota and Michigan have hinted, hey, we could revisit this if you like, uh, back when, when it's time for the general election, but but not now. So. This gap in time is time that Trump and his cohorts will use and are already using to continue to drive a wedge between the American people and the courts, the American people and the Constitution. And this notion that, hey, maybe we don't like the Constitution so much if it's gonna go against my guy. So we're losing that battle of saying, no, we're all supposed to be for the Constitution. We may not like the court's decisions and interpretations, but we've got to abide by them. This time is being utilized by Trump to say, I'm against institutions. If it attacks me, it's bad. If it's against me, you shouldn't respect it either. And that's where we get into trouble. And I I think we saw an unprecedentedly quick response when the Colorado decision came out and the threats began from FBI Denver. You don't usually see the FBI come out Mm -hmm. and say, hey, We're aware of these state threats and we're working alongside our law enforcement partners. That's generally done very quietly. But instead, the FBI has come out and said, no, 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 we're 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 aware we're working on this. That tells us there's something much bigger here than a state level threat.
1: Right. I mean, Joyce, because we understand with whom these threats originate. You look at the other states considering this question. Maine today, Trump demanded the secretary of state recuse herself. Talk to us about what's going on there.
7: Right, so in Maine the process is a little bit different, and the Secretary of State Shana Billows is hearing the arguments and will render an initial decision. I think that the uh, former president is sadly mistaken if he thinks that she'll back down in the face of his threats. Maine has a proud tradition of protecting voters' rights. It's one of the states with consistently the highest voter turnout in the country. And so this question of eligibility will get very serious consideration in Maine, as it has done in other states. The problem is that these are serious questions with legal and political importance that should be made in the democratic tradition. And they shouldn't be made with actors, decision makers being pressured with the risk of violence emanating from the former president. I don't really know how more plainly to say Mm -hmm. it than to say that the Republican Party has completely abdicated its responsibility to the rest of the country By permitting Trump to continue to make these threats that are threats of violence, he knows by now that when he speaks, it has the ability to impact people in his base. He knows that he's putting legislators and judges and prosecutors at risk when he makes these comments. Anyone who's in a position to condemn it and fails to is, in essence, condoning it. And that's simply where we are as 2023 comes to a close.
1: Peter, it strikes me we've talked about Michigan. That's the big news we came in on. We just talked about Maine. But I go back to the point that Joyce made earlier about the fact that there's going to have to be a unified understanding this is not going to work if there is a patchwork of state solutions. She is thinking of that, of course, legally. That is the role we ask her to play. For you, from a security perspective, right, from a sense of people being able to get on board and say, These are the rules, whether or not you like them. This is how we are proceeding as a nation. Both your biggest concerns and sort of the best path forward here if we are able to get to a unified understanding.
10: Well, my biggest concern is that we have the presumptive Republican nominee for president who has and continues to engage in calls for violence from his supporters. And look, there's an interesting data point here. No just shortly after the Michigan Supreme Court indicated they weren't going to take this up, Donald Trump took to Truth Social and lauded their decision, talked about how they were absolutely right. It would be very interesting, you know, Frank pointed out how the FBI in Colorado out of the Denver office is actively working the threats to the Colorado justices. Let's take a look at the data coming out of Michigan. Are there any threats right now to those Michigan Supreme Court justices who decided not to hear the case? Because the fact of the matter is this isn't an environment where everybody is prone to violence. The fact of the matter is this is an environment where adherents and supporters of the former president are engaging in threats of violence. And there's a comparative absence of any sort of like behavior on the side. You don't see supporters of Joe Biden going out and threatening Michigan uh, Supreme Court justices. So my worry is that Donald Trump is not constraining any of his behavior, his words result in violent action. It isn't stopping. He is well aware of what's going on. And I think whatever we see coming out of the Supreme Court, there is going to they can't unwrite the 14th Amendment. There is going to have to be some provision that if somebody engages in insurrection, that that does potentially disqualify them from the presidency in some way, in some manner of determining that Trump is not going to like that. And so the question is, as we move down into 2024, we've got a slow boil right now, but that pot is just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter on the oven.
1: I, I want you to pick up Frank, if you will, on, on Peter's point about the asymmetry that we have witnessed when it comes to political rhetoric, political violence in this country and what that then means for law enforcement institutions as they attempt to track that violence and threats of violence as best they can.
12: This does appear to be one-sided, and the data does support that in terms of arrests, convictions, and, and facts. And look, the facts, this is one of the problems in not having even a common language. We don't have a common truth. So the Colorado court reviewed just reams of data and evidence, and actually it gives us a glimpse into what Jack Smith has in front of him as well and what we're likely to see in the D.C. election case They all looked at all of that evidence and think about all the evidence they they likely have in front of them. And what did they come up with? Insurrection. Trump engaged in an insurrection. And so we can't even present facts and have them responded to with reason and logic anymore. But I often, if I'm talking with someone who just sees things from an entirely different way, I ask them to flip the scenario. Tell me about, you know, how you would feel if Biden had done... Everything we know Trump has done. Well, you know, Biden's not qualified. Oh, oh, So you're making a decision about a president not being qualified. Isn't that what the Colorado Supreme Court is being permitted to do? Because we pay them to make those decisions. And then kind of their head explodes. But it's it's an exercise I, I encourage everyone to engage in. Just ask them to flip the scenario on any particular debate you're having.
1: Right. I mean, Katie, you think about this. None of this is in the rear view. Yes, we're talking about accountability for something that happened, but we're talking about an election that is on the horizon to add to the unprecedented nature of that. You have a candidate who is running for his party's nomination for president, and he's using the criminal charges. He's using the potential Mm -hmm. constitutional violations as
11: reasons to vote for him, we've never seen that before. No, he's using his criminal trials basically as campaign events. But I think that one of the things that Joyce said earlier is really important here. One of the reasons he's doing this is because he's able to and he's allowed to because he's his party, which he hopes to represent, hasn't stopped him and is empowering him. And so I think that that's the big question. At what point does the party decide that it, it, that the Constitution is more important than power? You know, I was just reading the Romney book by McKay Coffin's Romney mm-hmm. and Reckoning, and he talks about the fact that in his estimation, of course, this isn't my words, this is, these are his, that he doesn't believe that a lot of people in his party really care so much for the Constitution anymore, but they're really invested in power. And if he's right... That's one framework through which we can see what's happening right now. They're incredibly empowered by Trump, by his supporters and by the potential for his win. And so they're not going to stop him. We're going to just continue to see these threats no matter what language, whether or not we have a shared language. It's a question of power.
1: Right. Peter, you take that framework, right? A, A governing party that is interested in power, not interested in the Constitution, no matter how many times they might flash you their pocket copy of the Constitution. Turns out they're carrying it around. They're not actually reading it. And then you take these threats that there are to people who are actually trying to be the guardrails, people who are actually trying to uphold the rule of law. And, And through just those two lenses, it becomes incredibly clear just how fragile our democracy is in this moment.
10: Right. And it goes to show the experience of the last four to five years about how powerful that motivation is. I mean, we've seen going back to the the first impeachment where the the intelligence community whistleblower was threatened when Ambassador Ivanovich was recalled from Ukraine and Trump said she was going to go through some things when any number of FBI officials were threatened by Donald Trump. You know, this sort of fear, coupled with the fact that political actors within the Republican Party in particular, want to avoid know something needs to be done, but are both afraid and lack the courage to do something themselves. And whether it's relying on Bob Mueller is going to do something or, you know, Mitch McConnell refusing to take a vote because we can, you know, indict and criminally go after the president. You have these political actors not wanting to take that action on themselves, coupled with the fact that the very real fear, that has been demonstrated by Trump against his opponents, and we're finally at the point now where it's now the Supreme Court's turn. Is the Supreme Court going to rule and you know provide a fig leaf for the political actors in the Republican Party to finally stand up against Trump and nominate somebody else and move the party away from him? I don't know if it's gonna happen or not. I don't know if the Supreme Court is going to act quickly enough for that to occur, but we're reaching the point where you know we can't keep we can't kick this can down the road any longer.
1: Right. Especially when what he is doing is fundamentally putting the entire system on trial. Right. He's trying to act as though this isn't about a question about him. It is a question about the institutions that have long undergirded our democracy. Your take on the story. I don't know if you saw we covered at the top of the last hour. Special counsel Jack Smith filing a motion to block Trump's political disinformation in court.
7: Right, so this is a motion that would be routine in most trials. It's called a motion in limine, and it's an effort to ask the judge to rule before the trial starts as to what evidence will be admissible at trial. And Jack Smith takes, I think, just a very non-controversial position and says that Trump isn't entitled to go on any political rants in the courtroom. He's permitted by the rules to offer evidence that's relevant to a fact that's in question. Those are the facts that support the charges that will let the jury determine whether he is guilty or not guilty. And so, for instance, permitting him to argue these crazy theories like there were foreign officials or FBI undercovers who led to January 6th, that sort of argumentation before a jury is out of bounds. It might be perfectly permissible in the court of public opinion but not in front of a trial jury. Of course, the oddity about this motion, Alicia, is that those proceedings in front of Judge Chutkin are stayed. Jack Smith nonetheless went ahead and filed this motion, and we'll have to see if the judge will rule on it now or if she'll set it aside along with everything else in that case while we wait for the D.C. Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court to weigh in on the immunity motions that are on appeal.
1: We have a lot more of this conversation to get to, and luckily no one is going anywhere when we return, why the Deputy Attorney General is calling out Republicans, blaming their false claims about the politicization of the Justice Department for that rash of new threats against law enforcement. That's ahead. Plus, the results of a newly released study into the rise of extremism inside the U.S. military, what's being done to curb a dangerous threat to national security. And Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been found after having gone missing in the Russian prison system. Where he is, how he's doing, that is later in the hour. Deadline White House continues after a quick break to not go anywhere.
9: Those claims bear no resemblance to the Justice Department that I know. The Justice Department that I know is filled with dedicated men and women, investigators, lawyers, prosecutors, analysts, professional staff, who get up every day, Pierre, they get up every day without regard to who's in the White House or who's in Congress. It really bothers me when uh, I hear those claims because um, it does a disservice to the men and women of the Justice Department.
1: Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco defending those at DOJ who have faced an onslaught of criticism and conspiracies spread by the former president and his Republican allies. It has become like clockwork. Cases opened, charges brought, a decision reached. And the former president goes on full verbal attack against those involved, including judges, prosecutors, agents, even clerks. The vicious words he uses, we do not like repeating them on this program. They are heard and then internalized by his supporters. There's more from Deputy AG Monaco.
9: What we've seen is an unprecedented rise in threats to public officials across the board law enforcement agents, prosecutors, judges, um, and election officials. And we are seeing that and responding to it. Just this week, just this week, Pierre, we've had cases involving threats to kill FBI agents, a Supreme Court justice. And three presidential candidates.
3: Three.
9: That's just this week.
1: Just this week, we are back with Katie, Pete, Frank and Joyce. Frank, just how dangerous is this when you look at it in its totality?
12: Oh, there's a tangible threat. I mean, for the first time uh, in in my in my career, uh, we now have a unit At FBI headquarters solely dedicated to monitoring threats against FBI agents, FBI personnel and their families and prosecutors. That's unheard of. Um, And they're busy because, you know, it doesn't make necessarily front page news, but over the course of the last 30 days or so, we have seen people arrested for threatening to take the lives of FBI personnel. Um, It's happening. And and it's a it's a theme that's running not only through our nation, but through this this the segments that the segments that we have in this hour of programming, which is Trump has created and given license to an environment where we can lash out violently against our institutions and the people in them, career personnel who simply want to go home safely at the end of the day to their families and and do what we ask them to do. Do what we want them to do, which is to uphold the oath they took to protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Donald Trump would be wise to take a lesson from those career professionals who put that above all else in their professional lives, and now sometimes they may have to pay the price for it, the supreme sacrifice for it. So it's a tangible threat. Um, it's why a couple of years ago I released a book. I, I had I felt compelled to write a book, Alicia, saying, "Look." That wasn't my FBI. I don't know what Trump is saying. It's not true. It's not been my experience. But here's here was my experience. Take a look at this.
1: Right. Peter, I I can almost hear the pain in Frank Fogluzy's voice, which you never quite hear. Right. But when you have been part of an institution that has brought you pride, where you have served your country to then have that institution called baselessly into question, there is the morale issue. There is the full, clear and present danger issue. There's also just the stress test that is happening right now, both with these institutions as guardrails for our democracy and just the volume of what it is that that we are dealing with. You, You heard A.G. Monaco talking about the number of high level threats in this past week alone.
10: Right. Well, I think it is, you know, my experience is similar to what she said, and I'm sure what Frank and Joyce have experienced, that this is, you know, absolutely a job that we went into every day and just went out, investigated and applied the law. So to have somebody in the form of Donald Trump going out there and undermining what the FBI and what DOJ are doing every day, as Frank said, the the notion of a unit now stood up to protect and look out for threats against FBI personnel. That unit wasn't needed during the height of the war on terror. That unit wasn't needed during the height of, uh, you know, the organized crime battles between the FBI and organized crime in America. But yet here we are in a political context where there is such a volume of threat activity going on that you need this dedicated unit of personnel. Now, Prosecutors, agents, analysts, investigators are going to go out there and do their job, but it is hard to focus on that. Not just with a you know something being said on media, but when there are threats being made, threats that might implicate your family. You know, we've got a special counsel now, in, in Jack Smith, who has a dedicated security detail. When I was working for, for Bob Mueller, when he was the special counsel, he didn't have uh, a security detail at that point in time. So this has become exponentially worse. It is not going going to get better. And unfortunately, it is targeting the very people who are there to enforce and uphold the laws which keep Americans safe, whether it's from violent crime, whether it's from white collar crime. These are the institutions that protect Americans day in and day out. And they're under attack because of the words and actions of Donald Trump.
1: Right. And because they are trying to hold him accountable, Katie, I want to play you a little more from that interview with Lisa Monaco. She was asked about the many special counsel investigations underway right now and their independence from the DOJ. Take a listen.
9: These are um, matters of um, the utmost importance and significance. Cases of that level of significance um, are it's exceptionally important that they are handled independently, confidentially and free of any outside or inappropriate influence. And that's exactly why the attorney general appointed special counsels in the first place.
3: Just for the record, so the public can hear from a top official at DOJ, has President Biden ever raised the classified documents investigation, the probe of Hunter Biden with you, or or the AG tried to influence you? Has he ever done that in regard to President Trump?
9: And the attorney general has been exceptionally clear on this point.
1: So, Katie, you can have that sort of critical exchange there at the end, right? Where it says, "Please make the, make this plain, make this clear for me." Have these conversations ever transpire? Talk to us both about the moment this Justice Department finds itself in, and the sort of importance of that that last exchange at the end of that interview.
11: Sure. I would say, first of all, the fact that Lisa Monaco is on television having this interview. Yeah. Is extraordinary. This is a department that does not want to talk about anything internal. These threats to FBI agents, to prosecutors, these have been a real. These have been a reality basically ever since the raid on Mar-a-Lago. However, nobody has wanted to publicly speak about it because this department really believes that you follow the rules, you follow the law, and the facts, and that is all. You never speak publicly. So the fact that Lisa Monaco has been willing to do this interview, I think, should. Really, I can't stress enough how that indicates to me, at least, that these issues have become really, really, really terrible, that she feels she needs to do this. Also, she's just simply trying to explain to the American people how the Justice Department conducts its business and why such important investigations need to be independent. But... It also really underscores the quandary the department is in. One of the things that Trump has done is by, att- by attacking these institutions is he's undermined for his supporters any credibility. He's oh, sorry, not undermined. He's, he is, he's undermined any credibility. So when someone like Lisa Monaco does go on television, they just don't believe her. Also, she's in a quandary because the special counsel has indicted Donald Trump, not once, but twice. So when she says we're simply following the facts and the law, the facts and the law have led us to this place, his supporters see those indictments and they simply think this is just proof that the Justice Department is after Trump unfairly. And so, again, no matter what sort of work she does at this point to try to explain what's going on to the American people, there is a large swath of his supporters that have spent You know, basically since 2017, listening to his rhetoric about this department. So she is going up against years and years of anti-FBI, anti-Justice Department rhetoric. And it's not clear to me that there's anything the department can do at this point rhetorically.
7: I mean, Joyce, that is an alarming proposition. It really is. You know, the deputy attorney general is someone who has served in a number of positions at DOJ. She was a line prosecutor. She ran the national security division. She had national security uh, uh, responsibilities in the White House during the Obama administration. And to see her feel the need, as Katie points out, to give an interview and to be willing to talk about threats to prosecutors and others, is really alarming. It's a real red flag about the position Donald Trump has placed the country in. Yes, a big part of it has been his rhetoric that people have accepted Um, that undercuts DOJ's integrity and the public's confidence in, in DOJ's integrity. But again, it goes back to our discussion earlier that Donald Trump is one voice. And if Donald Trump had said this, and if others in his party had said that's not the case, these are strong, solid democratic institutions that we can have confidence in, we would not be at the point that we're in today. So now we've got a deputy attorney general who's forced to reveal in the course of an interview that not one, but three presidential candidates were the subject of serious threats. That there are now so many FBI agents and their families who have been threatened that there's a whole unit at the bureau that's committed to investigating those claims. This is a diversion of our resources from where they should be. And again, it lies at the feet of the former president. People in law enforcement are used to threats in the course of their work. What they're not used to is those threats from coming inside of the House. Right. And that is the critical point. Joyce Vance, Katie Benner, Peter Strzok, thank you all so
1: much for starting us off this hour. Frank Fogluzzi, you are sticking with me because when we return, the growing specter of extremism within the United States military, the alarming results of a newly unveiled report. I'm going to bring that to you after a very quick break. Stay with us. New reporting reveals an alarming confirmation by an internal Pentagon study about extremism within the U.S. military, a long-awaited report completed a year and a half ago, ordered by the Secretary of Defense in the wake of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The study warns, according to USA Today, that extremism in the military is rare, but dangerous. And that, quote, the participation in violent extremist activities, even of even a small number of individuals could present a risk to the military and to the country as a whole. While the findings, according to that reporting, appear to only reiterate the widely reported alarming extremism problem within the military, the study also importantly confirms the growing participation rates for former service members in extremist activities and underscores it warns the need for the U.S. military security clearance process to start accounting for the quote threat of homegrown extremism. Joining our conversation, Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and Professor Emeritus of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. Frank is also back. Tom, what do you make of this study?
13: I'm not surprised. Um, I was part of the um, I was still a DOD employee back when um, we did the big stand down, as they call it, a big one day event about extremism. And really nothing came of it. It was um, a day of presentations that said, you know, it's bad to be an extremist and that we should all serve the Constitution. But I, I think the Pentagon doesn't quite know um, what to do about this because I think there's still not enough reliable data about just how far into the ranks uh, this goes at this point. But it's but it's clearly a problem and it's clearly been growing um, over the past several years. So um, well, I'm not surprised, I'm also not particularly heartened Uh, that anybody's really um, knows what to do about it yet.
1: Right. I mean, Frank, to that end, it did seem like this emphasis on the security clearance, was one of the more tangible recommendations out of this report. This is what came out of USA Today, quote, to a significant extent on Cold War threats and threats related to the global war on terrorism rather than the threat of homegrown extremism. That's what the security clearance process still focuses on. I mean, Is that part of the answer examining the security clearance process? And and my other question is, does that really work if what they're saying is in as much as this is a problem among current members of the military, it's really a problem among former members?
12: Yeah, I mean, this is what jumped out at me the most about this study, is that gatekeeper function, who comes into the military and who's asked not to come into the military, is not working. And the the, the current status of our background investigations that the military conducts simply isn't cutting it when it comes to ferreting out the potential for violent, radical behavior. Um, you know, I, I think back to the FBI uh, application background uh, process. Uh, it's somewhat similar, but certainly far more in-depth than, than a, a, someone signing up to join the military. But we ask questions that go back to the Cold War. You know, is this person loyal to the United States? Uh, do they have close and continuing contacts with people in adversarial states, Russia, China, etc.? And why? Why should we or not look into that? Has anyone—we'll ask them on a polygraph in the FBI—has anyone— Asked you directed you to apply to the FBI. That's not happening um, at, at the U.S. military. But more importantly, that process doesn't serve any agency well today when you're talking about the domestic threat, because, yeah, I have no friends in Russia or, or China. Yep. OK, I'm good. You, you know, are you going to defend the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's going on in their head is, yeah, I'm going to defend the United States for Donald Trump. That's what I'm going to do. So it's one thing to say we don't allow certain Nazi tattoos and white supremacist tattoos into the military. But it's another thing entirely to get your arms around the metrics of measuring whether or not you've got a true problem. And this report, by the way, was done a year and a half ago. And we're just now in the smack in the middle of the holiday season. We're now getting it. And we're now uh, talking about it. And it's a giant, colossal shrug of the shoulders as to what they're going to do about it. But I know this, it's going to take money to, to revamp the background process. You should not be getting a top-secret clearance like that young man up in New England did in the Air Force National Guard that's now been arrested for espionage. Why does he have a top-secret clearance when he has all of these engagements with law enforcement, all of these issues in his prior life? we got to get better at this because these people are trained, trained to kill and they need something to do when they get out, something different than assaulting the Capitol on January
1: 6th. Well, Tom, to the point that Frank raised about the fact that it was a year and a half that it's being released in what is supposed to be a sleepy time when it comes to media coverage. You wrote in The Atlantic, the extremism problem within the U.S. military is, quote, more worrisome than military leadership would like to admit. I wonder how you break through.
13: Um. Unfortunately, we've had plenty of incidents uh, that should have broken through. Um, One of the things that um, you find, particularly with these kind of lost young men who end up joining extremist organizations, is that they join the military because they think it's it's almost like they're taking the cure, you know, that they think that this is going to be the thing that straightens out their lives. And I really want to emphasize what Frank was talking about with security clearances. I held a, a Department of Defense clearance for most of my adult life, and Yeah, it's really good at making sure that, you know, none of us were um, communists, uh, but, you know, it doesn't it's not very good at finding out, you know, are you uh, obsessed with violence and Nazi imagery and, um, you know, all of these other kind of red flags that scare people about high school and college students. It's just not decide to do that. I mean some of it's like still right out of the 1950s and 1960s. And so um I think part of what's unsettling for the military is not only that they see that the problem's growing. And I and I really want to emphasize though that I I think small but worrisome is right. This is not a, you know a massive problem in the US military, but but any a problem of, like this of any size is a really worrisome problem. And I think part of what's worrying the military, part of what's worrying the Pentagon is They just don't know how many um, problems they really have because the whole personnel and security clearance clearance system wasn't designed to, to spot this. And so now they've got to try and do it. Um, but, you know, a lot of time's gone by since January 6th, and I, and I don't think that, you know, there's been a whole lot of motion on this.
1: And again, you add on the entire layer of retired officers who are participating. Tom Nichols, Frank Fogluzi, as always, thank you so much for your time. When we return, after going missing in the Russian prison system, opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the main rival to Vladimir Putin, has been located where he is, how he's doing, after a quick break. An update on a story we brought you before the holidays. Alexei Navalny, jailed opposition leader to Vladimir Putin, has been located after nearly three weeks of radio silence. He was found in a penal colony north of the Arctic Circle, nicknamed Polar Wolf, and his lawyer was able to see him Monday. That's according to his spokeswoman. who Warned that this prison will be much worse than the one he was held in before in what she said was an attempt to make his life, quote, as unbearable as it possibly can be and to isolate him further. The region is notorious for long and severe winters located near the Soviet-era gulag camps where coal mines were known to be among the harshest. Navalny, for his part, posted on X that he is fine, even joked that the beard he grew on his 20-day journey made him, quote, your new Santa Claus. Let's bring in former U.S. ambassador to Russia and MSNBC international affairs analyst Michael McFall, Ambassador, what do you make of the timing of Navalny's reemergence here?
14: Well, I think he finally got to his horrific destiny. Uh, and they allowed his lawyer to come see him. That's the good news. Second piece of good news is that he's alive. Uh, there were worries that he'd been killed. Uh, the bad news is he's in one of the worst prisons in all of Russia. And they have lots of bad prisons. Uh, two hours of sunlight during the winter time. It's part of the gulag, as you just described. And it's designed, A, to torture him more. And it's notorious for being a place of increased torture. And B, to keep him even more isolated uh, from his followers, from his supporters, from his lawyers, from his family. Uh, that is why he was assigned to this place.
1: Do you give any credence to his allies who, who suggested that it was not a coincidence that when he went missing, just as President Putin announced his reelection?
14: Hard to say. Uh, most certainly Putin does not want people to be hearing from Mr. Navalny during the presidential election uh, to underscore an election that we all know who's going to win. Uh, but the fact that Putin so fears Navalny, I think, also tells us a little bit about maybe the status of Putin's popularity inside Russia. Think about it. If Putin was so popular and everybody supported his barbaric war uh, in Ukraine, why would he have to go to such lengths to silence a critic that allegedly has no support? And so that suggests to me that Putin is extremely paranoid about Mr. Navalny. He understands that Navalny's message is one that resonates at least with some Russians.
1: So understanding all of that context, Ambassador, your sense of what's next for Navalny?
14: Well, uh, you know, he did tweet out both in English and Russian, a long uh, thread joking about being, uh, you know, Santa Claus again. Uh, I deeply admire the fact that he can keep his sense of humor and irony under these extreme conditions. And that, I think, helps him to do the number one thing that he needs to do, which is to stay alive. And all his family, his supporters, his friends, that's what they're focused on now. He just needs to stay alive to keep fighting for another day.
1: Ambassador, I want to ask you about other prisoners in Russian prisons, Ukrainian prisoners of war, a spokesperson for Ukraine's office on the treatment of POWs recently told political quote, a person has not heard from a relative for more than a year. And here he calls and says that he is alive. Russians are ready to exchange him, but Ukraine does nothing. Recently, these calls became massive. So we understood that this is a campaign to cause distrust in the government, with Politico adding that this appears to be aimed, quote, at inflaming tensions in Ukrainian societies. Your sense of the tactics being used here?
14: Well, first, thanks for mentioning that, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'm glad to see the the outpour of concern about Alexei Navalny, But my Ukrainian colleagues were also saying, what about the outpour of concern about our POWs and our prison, not just prisoners of war, people that were kidnapped, children that were kidnapped, the defenders of Mariupol? We still don't know where they are. So they they now need the same attention that Alexei Navalny got. And again, it's just part of the tactics of Putin's cruelty, his evilness, that he does these kinds of things. I, I frankly think he takes pleasure. In this kind of cruelty, uh, he likes it. He likes to put it up and he likes to show to his people inside Russia and the rest of the world that he's capable of doing it and nobody can stop him.
1: Ambassador Michael McFall, as always, thank you for your time and thank you for your expert tweets. Quick break for us. We'll be right
5: back. But suddenly my word. Suddenly my words. Else <laughs> that stupid is. song. I'll sing it. I'll sing it. Anyway. What it's did stupid, you say? Stupid song, but I'll sing it. I don't
0: want you angry. I just want you to know that it's a stupid, dumb song
1: talk about an all-time duo in the history of American comedy. Well, we're very sorry to report this afternoon that Tom Smothers, one half of the award-winning Smothers Brothers, died Tuesday from an aggressive form of cancer at the age of 86. That's according to his family. Beyond their brand of witty and genuinely charming sibling comedy, Tom and his brother Dick were trailblazers in mass media. CBS famously canceled their Comedy Hour program in 1969 for continually poking fun at the establishment and being honest about civil rights and the Vietnam War, a legacy for which his family should be very proud, especially these days. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending this Wednesday with us. We are, as always, so grateful.
4: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.